Come one, come all, for our Marquee Auction Strategy Podcast 2022 edition. Glenn Colton of SiriusXM joins us to talk all things auction, from preparation to execution and everything else in between. We'll also cover a few undervalued outfielders and more next on Beat the Shift. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast, presented by Fangraphs. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always is Ruven Guy. How are you, Ruven? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, and we've got a fantastic episode today. It's our auction strategy episode, and we have a great guest on from Fantasy Alarm and half of the Colton and the Wolfman show on Sirius XM Radio. Welcome to the show, Glenn Colton. How are you? I am doing well. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to work with you guys, Ariel and Ravine. Oh, likewise, likewise. It's been been a little while. You were on the show last year and wanted to have your take on auction strategy. One thing I was telling you before the show started is that uh, you're one of the masters of performing well in auction with uh, quite a few tout wars and labor titles, which are all auction. And you might do things a little bit different than Ruvain and I. You also work with a partner. So I think this could be a great episode to show some differences of opinion, some same opinions, and really give the listeners some great input as to what to do for an auction. So thanks for joining the show today. Yeah, no, listen, it's an absolutely a pleasure. And auctions are, to me, so much more fun. I mean, I do drafts. I enjoy, enjoy drafts. But the auctions are just, I think, where, where really the rubber meets the road. I agree. I agree. Very different. than. And if you have not tried an auction yet, you really should. Maybe we'll convince you by listening to this show today. Um, the first question I have for you, Glenn, and this is sort of a very – it came across more during COVID as – People are going more online for auction because, unfortunately, it could be tough to get together in person because of COVID. Or maybe you're living in a different part of the country from everybody else in your league and you still want to compete and you do so on an online auction. How, for you, does a live auction differ for you than an online one? You know, the the planning, if you will, the the, the budgeting, the strategy, all everything you do up to the start of the event is, to me, is the same. But what's really different is not only is is live different than online, but every online system is different and have different bells and whistles and different risks, which we can get into. But for me, the difference is you can't really read the room. It's sort of like when you play poker, you can look for a tell, you can see certain things in in your, you know, uh, league mates that you can't see online. And you can't be as precise online. You know, when you hear an auctioneer going going once, going twice, you, you get the cadence completely down. And there are times you can bid at the beginning, bid, bid right under the wire. Much harder to do things like that and get a sense whether your league mates are really just driving you up or are really interested in the player when all you're looking for is... Um, you know, boxes on your screen as opposed to the human face. So I think it's really, really different. And there's a lot more risk in mismanaging the technology. There's some great technology. I personally love RT Sports, uh, but there's some very good technologies out there. But there are quirks in them that get very dangerous in in the auctions. Yeah, I totally agree with everything you said there. Anything to add, Ruvain? 
Yeah, when you're doing an in-person auction, you can control the room a little bit. It's very hard to control the room on when you're on the computer and doing an auction like that. But certain ways you make bids. Like let's say you, I know RL, you do it all the time when you're in a live auction. You will bid almost on every player. You will say loud. You will get people laughing. Try to get people off their game a little bit. Try to intimidate them. You can't really intimidate when you're online, but when you're in person, you can do that. Yeah, absolutely. As, as Glenn said, uh, it's like playing poker. It's very different playing online than in person. I'll add one other thing that nobody said is that I think that having a partner really benefits you even more on an online auction. Because when you're doing an auction in person, I'm usually looking at my computer screen, looking up the player, seeing some last-minute things, but I'm hearing out loud the bids, and I'm hearing how it's going. During an online auction, I have to also simultaneously stare at another computer screen to see how the bids are going. And you have to take your mouse and then press the button to bid or not bid. And so you lose that extra time to do your other checks and balances on your computer. So it's harder. And I think that if you have a partner, then they can do the bidding and you can still do your thing. Like I think there's more opportunities for a partner to help out in an online versus live. Do you agree with that, Glenn? I don't. Um, I agree with I agree with everything you said up until the last point. <laughs> uh, you know, I think that having a partner, if you have, you know, you have an understanding of what each of your roles are and what you're going to be doing, it's incredibly valuable. And you know, the Rick Wolf, the Wolfman, and I have been doing uh, fantasy baseball, quote unquote, expert industry leagues together now for 20 years. So we know exactly what our roles are, what we're looking at, what we're supposed to be doing, um, but. You know, I think it's valuable either way. The one other thing I guess I would disagree with is if I'm sitting in, you know, a, the labor auction room or, or the towers room in person, I'm not looking at a computer. Rick's looking at the computer. I have my paper printouts. I have the plan and the budget in front of me. And 95% of the time, I'm actually looking at the people in the room or the auctioneer. So to me, that's so much better for being able to do the bidding and do the bidding in a effective way, do all the things that Ruvain was talking about, bid louder sometimes, wait sometimes, bid on every player for, you know, an hour, because I can just watch the room, whereas obviously online, I need to be laser focused on the computer screen. Yeah, it's funny. And if I asked Rick the same question, maybe because he's also the computer guy, would he give a more similar answer to me, whereas you're giving a more similar answer to Ruvain because you're not looking computer and Ruvain doesn't look at a computer either during an uh, an auction nope. live. So maybe I'm it's doing, just the I'm style. Doing the, I'm doing the, the paper and pencil, th uh, the paper paper and pen thing, constantly keeping track of budget, balancing the budget by hand, not looking at a computer and doing it. It's a, it's a completely different experience when you're doing it like that and you have someone doing the computer where you can have your own checks and balances. Right. Yeah, I, I think Rick, I think Rick would say would agree with you because what he does, and this is really interesting, and I don't know if jumping ahead or whatever, but he actually inputs. He's got a he's got a his own like software, if you will, and every player that is there. I don't like to say buying a player. That sort of sounds like you own a human being. But when I say that, I mean buying it, buying their stats, you know, buying their future stats. When when a player is is obtained, their stats are obtained. The Rick will type it into a team, so he's got projections for every single team and will be able to tell me 
you know, Ariel's team needs steals. And I'll know, oh, I can mess with him a little bit on the last steal guy, you know, that kind of thing, which is amazing. So he's got his face in that computer the whole time providing, you know, huge information. Uh, that is exactly what I do. Uh, I, ha I have the own, my own software that I've created. I mean, I have some crazy things like anti-correlations, like wh who, what player would fit our team the best categorically to balance us out from a certain ADP range? Like, you know, just to, just these quirky things uh, that I get, but I constantly look, look at the computer because it's updating in real time. And I also put in whoever gets bought, I put them in, I put the stats on whoever team uh, was allocated to, and you get the same kind of thing. So yeah, I, uh, he might he might share a lot of opinions with me. Um, but the next question is, you know, how does the talk about auction versus snake? How does the preparation for you differ from when you're preparing for a snake draft versus an auction? It's so much more preparation for an auction because you have to have a very careful budget and a plan. And then you have to have a plan B and a plan C and a plan D. And this, and you have to have all that locked down in advance because your decision time is two seconds. Whereas even in a quick moving snake draft, you have a minute, a minute and a half. So I never understood the concept of, oh, the guy before me or the lady before me just took who I was going to pick. You have a minute or a minute and a half in an auction that's that's an eternity. So the level of, of planning and preparation, I think, is so much greater for an auction and for a draft, for a snake draft, especially because you know where you're picking, you can pretty much map out what your first three to five rounds are going to look like. And then after that, the ADPs go out the window and you really just need to know the player pool and react to it. But you have... In a 15-teamer, if you're in the middle, which is you pick most often other in the ends, you really have a long time. You still have like 10 minutes between picks, even in a fast-moving draft. This, you don't really, I mean, you know the player pool. I don't think at that point you even have to prepare at all. You can just use your knowledge. It's, it's so much easier. It's fun. I do it. I like it. But it's so much easier. Yeah, I totally agree with everything there. Uh, what, what do you have to add, Ruvain? There's one other thing that when you're preparing for an auction, you also have to prepare a list of people you want to nominate. And when in a snake draft, whoever you pick, that's who you pick, that's it. But if you want to test the waters and you want to see how much a certain type of player, or a steals guy or a power guy or a top pitcher is going for, you want to test the waters. Or if there's a player that you don't want, you want them to get off the board and you don't need them, you can nominate them and change the whole focus of everyone else in the draft room just by doing that one thing. Yeah. Um, for me, snake drafts, I prepare backwards, meaning I look and see who I think are going to be bargains in the later rounds based on ADP to my values. And I see, OK, well, I think there's going to be some first baseman available in the 20th round that I like. Maybe I shouldn't take a first baseman up above or I have a smaller propensity to take a first baseman up above because I can get a bigger bargain lower down. I I'm working the draft backwards and I'm preparing in reverse. In an auction, it goes more forward in that, all right, I, I take a look at the entire player pool and I do see where the bargains are going, but the construction of it 
doesn't have to go backwards to forwards. It could be sideways. Um, you know, in a in a snake draft, you have to take a first round player, and you have to take a second round player, and you have to take a third round player, and you have to take a fourth round player, so on and so forth. In an auction, you don't have to. You can take no first round players, no second, and four fourths. You can take three first round players, and nothing in the fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth. Um, it's about how you construct your team, and I like the preparation of taking a look at where the bargains are all over the place and learning how to construct what I think my team is from anywhere in the draft. And, and so that, that's what I do, uh, and that is how I differ from a snake and an auction. Question to you, Glenn, scouting. Um, a, do you scout any players uh, if you've never played in a league before with them, or if you have played in a league, how much attention do you pay to the types of players they get? Like, for example, I know Lenny Melnick doesn't get closers. He he might nominate them, but he will not draft closers in a league. How much does that influence what somebody else does on what you're doing in an auction? You know, not much, to tell you the truth. There are certain things that where it affects me, whether Lenny or one of the other 11 managers, you know, and I am in labor NL with Lenny Melnick, um, you know, goes after closers. Just one guy not bidding on the closers doesn't really change how much the closers are going to cost to acquire their stats. On the other hand, in if you know that there are two or three players in your league who don't spend on pitching, then you have to know that because the cost of hitting will be so much greater because the amount of dollars allocated to hitting if three teams are taking 30 more dollars than you would expect and putting into hitting that's going to drive the prices up and you have to know that because then you're going to you know have to get out early and get your hitters uh, more than waiting till the end when everyone realizes oh god there's nothing left uh, but one you know one person what their tendency is, it really has to be a more of a substantial percentage of the league having a propensity to change what we're going to do. Um, I'll just add that knowing the players in your league, maybe that helps, you know, in certain bidding wars where you maybe have a gut sense they're just bidding you up uh, and you let them, you let them, you know, take the player. Uh, but generally, we have a plan, we follow our plan. And we think we're good at it. We think we have a good plan. So we don't worry too much about what the others are doing and, you know, let the best team win. Sure. I, I know that, especially in home leagues, you know there's some fan favorites where, oh, this guy always takes a certain player. I know in our, in, Ruben, in our NFBC auction on Friday, the same guy takes Steven Strasburg no matter what uh, in any single league. So, you know, you can bid him up and that kind of thing always happens. Um, what about you, Rain? Do you look at what other people are doing or do scouting? Very little. I mean, it's very hard to do scouting, especially if you're doing like an NFBC league and you don't know any of the people there. But one thing, if you do do some scouting and you recognize some names and you've been in leagues with them before, you'll know that if the person they nominate, they're going after. Or the person they nominate, they're just throwing that out there just to get rid of somebody. Because I remember, I think it was a couple of years ago in one of our labor leagues, one guy kept going to him, he kept nominating catchers. He had one catcher, and he just kept nominating all the catchers. Did he want them? No, but it, it shows a little bit of what his strategy was, that he wants to get them off the board. He wants people to overpay for them. So sometimes scouting does help, but it's... A lot of times you, you can actually do the scouting in the room at the time of the draft. Yeah. 
I'm thinking more about uh, pre-draft. Uh, obviously, it does matter what somebody is doing in the room that it affects it every single year. Uh, I mean, for me, I think that uh, it does help because, you know, if, if I know what kind of drafter a player is, is, is this person a stars and scrubs, is this person a spread the risk, I know where they're going to compete against me. I, I play against Jeff Zimmerman, and Jeff Zimmerman doesn't grab anybody over $25, and he'll grab every player at 19 or $18. So I know that if I need a player in that range, I might be fighting with him for it. Something to keep in mind. Uh, I know that uh, you know, I play against Paul Sporer in Tout Wars head-to-head, and I know he has a much higher view on what hitting is worth in the head-to-head league than pitching. I probably won't be in competition with Paul, so I might not have to worry as, as much with him. I know Frankie Stample has a very similar strategy to me. I have to watch out for what he's doing and see what positions he takes, and I have to really look at what he's doing more than anybody else. So I think knowing the players really helps what you do. The other thing I'd say is that I think that if you're in similar league types, it really helps to to do scouting. Like I remember two years ago when I was uh, in Florida with you, Glenn, in and, and Ruvain too. Um, I had I was in labor. I was, I had the third labor draft on Sunday, whereas your auctions were Mon- uh, Friday night and Saturday, and I sat at with Ruvain at all of them the whole entire auction to really get a gauge on what market prices were what players were going higher than i thought for the experts how much did speed get bumped up like i want to know for that given year what experts are doing to know what i should look for in my own draft so i think it really helps to get more information like that well i mean what you're talking about is a little bit of a different concept of not so much what a particular individual fantasy manager is likely to do but what the broader market is viewing power or the few lockdown closers or whatever it may be. And I do think that's valuable, but I will say that you can fall into a trap. I mean, you guys are experienced enough and, and, you know, savvy enough that if you watch an AL only, you know, you're going to have to change what you see to apply it to a 12 team mixed, which was what you were in uh, back in Florida, which you're referring to. Um, You know, the, there's a difference. Some leagues have, very little of, you know, a monoleague of very little of a particular skill or a particular position. And the prices are going to be, you know, something you have to adjust for a mixed league where that scarcity of either position or category doesn't exist as much. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, no doubt. Uh, I mean, obviously the formats were different and we had to adjust it. But you know, if I thought that the market should pay uh, or was going to pay a certain price and the player went $5 more, uh, it, it might not translate exactly, but it will be higher than what I originally thought for my own mixed league. That kind of that kind of thinking. Here's a question to you, and obviously, Ruben and I we do very very careful uh, picking the auction values and what our target strike prices are. I'm not going to say that we're full Larry Schechter, but we're closer <laughs> to him than going the other way. What do you use to construct your player values? How strict are you to adhering to your values during an auction and so on and so forth? Well, a lot of times we'll just bid one more than Larry bids just because it's fun. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I threatened that, to that do works. that to Ian. and he, <laughs> We actually did that. We, we, Jeff Erickson, Chris Liss, and I did, did that. We didn't plan it. We didn't conspire. We just started doing it in the, in the auction room in Tower Wars one year. I think it was 2014. And Larry just couldn't get a player. It was really fun, but um, and Larry's a great player. You know, it's, it's there's no doubt about that. But anyway, my the answer to your question is, 
um, we, we, we have a plan and we will not stick to numbers if, if we value a player at 15. We're not so doctrinaire that we won't bid 16. We typically value in a way that it presumes that gives me, pretty much as the one who's doing the bidding, a couple of dollars of leeway. So if we sort of put somebody on the page at 15, it really means depending on what's going on in the draft, in the, you know, is this the last guy available? Uh, what do the prices look like? A, a couple of dollars leeway to be able to bid more. Um, so we're not really um, shecterizing them. We're, we're, we're sticking to a range of what we think a player is, is worth. But because of the way we play in our system, we've eliminated a lot of players that we just know we're not going to obtain um, in the auction because we simply know we won't pay what the market's going to pay and we just move on. Right. Well, what, what do you use in terms of do you take a projection system and run it through uh, an auction calculator to get your prices? Or do you sit and come up with, I think he's worth 15, and obviously it's going to be, it's not, it's not a random whim, but you're looking at stats. But you know, what, what is your general process for that? So Rick and I will literally discuss um, every player in the major leagues and quite a fair number of minor leaguers. And we will put not what I would publish as this is their value or their, um, you know, like you do ATC and it has a value and you're doing it mathematically. I'm going to put a list on my page that says this is what we're willing to pay. So the market may say the average auction price of this player is 17. If I think the guy's great, I'm going to put 22 on my page because if I think he's that good, I'm willing to pay that. I'm going to try not to. <laughs> you know, I'm hoping to get him for less, but I'm going to put down what am I willing to pay based on our strategy and our plan. And we will have read a lot of material. We'll have looked at the you know, projection systems, read a lot of um, data, studied the players, um, you know, various metrics and advanced metrics, and we will, we will talk it out and we will come to a value. And a question that just came up, though, um, do you ever have a point where you get to say, you know what, pre-draft, you're going to say, I don't want to go over this value. Like, say you say you think this player is worth 22. You, will you say, I will not go over 22 to get this player? Um absent some major change. I mean, if all of a sudden, it, it has not happened to us except for once, and I can tell the story, where we were so off on the market that we had to make that big change. We generally understand the market. We understand what the general pricing is likely to look like. So, I mean, I'm just making this up. Let's say we have, we want to spend $20 at first base and we have four guys we think are worth it. The $35 guy, guy we're not getting, the $30 guy we're not getting. And almost always we can get one of those four guys at $20 because we're properly valuing. And our hope, of course, is that we could do a $25 player at 20 or a $20 player at 16. But we rarely have to do what you're saying, Ravine, which is really just go way beyond with one exception. At the very end of the auction, if you're into the fourth or fifth hour and you 
realize that there's just no reason to save. This is the last guy who might get me 10 steals and whatever. I have 10 bucks and two players to go, even though I think this is a $3 player. I'll play nine because what's the difference? Um, that will happen. Yeah. No, at the end, uh, obviously, everything is out the window. Now, Ruvain, you're a uh, much stricter. I mean, I'm pretty strict, but you're even stricter than me. You know, I'll often say, ah, I'll go the extra dollar on this guy or uh, – uh, and it's not a gut feel; it's more of a market feel. Uh, but uh, no, can you talk a little bit about uh, your strict adherence to uh, values? Yeah, I don't like it when you go over what we plan on pay- paying for a guy because we have a set budget going into every auction. We know we have an idea. We we're going to pl- play put money here in shortstop. We're going to have a certain amount of money in shortstop, certain amount of money in the outfield. And after a while, you can move money around. In the very beginning, you can move money around. But when you get to like, let's say the seventh, eighth round, and you start overpaying for someone, you have to start moving money around, then you start saying, wait a second, there are a lot of players that we still need. We don't have enough money. We have to stick to a strict budget. Otherwise, we will not get what we need in the end. And it just comes down to that. And how many times have I told you, stop, stop, do not go, stop, stop, do not go. And sometimes you go, sometimes you don't, because you're the one who normally is the one making the bids. And when we go on, when we do it online, we're doing auctions online, I'm the one who does it. I'm the one dealing with everything. And I'm pretty safe in saying, I'm not going to touch it. Do not touch it. Don't bid on this person because we need that money elsewhere. Because if you start overspending by 2 or $3 in each area, you can move money around, but you're just going to lower the value of what you expected to get in each position. And that's not really your plan. Yes, you can, you can make it work, but it's not going to make it work the way you planned out. And if it doesn't make it work the, plan, the way you planned out and your plan is it's going to work, then you have a problem. Sounds as if we don't uh, we don't agree on a lot of players, but the truth is that Ruben and I go over every single player, and we, we do have an agreement on what we think a player is worth, and these instances are few and far between. I mean, uh, you know. Uh, Speak for yourself. I, I, I've told you to stop <laughs> many times. <laughs> and and, and you bid on people, and I've been upset about it, and I said, you know, why did you do that? And then there'll be a time a couple of years ago, we were in our home draft and I said, we need power. We need Reese Hoskins. He was going for one extra dollar and you did not want to, sp- you didn't want to spend that extra dollar. And I said, no, we need him. We, what we ended up losing him. And if we would have had him on our roster, we probably would have won the league. Maybe. Well, that's always hard to tell when you have a thousand different, you know, variables like that. I will say that the reason we build in, we don't put a precise dollar value on players, but a you know, a range that can go three, four dollar difference is to allow us the flexibility to react to what we're seeing, both in terms of our own roster construction and the pricing in the room. The other thing I will tell you is as much as we have that flexibility, the flexibility that I mean, you guys are great players, so I'm not being critical, but that makes Ruvain uncomfortable. Um, by the end of an auction, if we've budgeted 190 and 70, we're probably at somewhere between 188 and 191 every single time. So it does tend to work out, which means I think that we're putting proper values on players and properly gauging the room in advance. The only thing I'll say though, is that, um, you know, I am a big believer in sticking to values, but the problem is that um, there are market premiums that arise during the draft. If, if, you know, speed we've valued before and we, you know, however the numbers come out, say X, but the market is spending $5 more for speed guys, going over a dollar or two on your predetermined values is actually a bargain. It's a $3 bargain compared to the $5 premium you'd have to pay. 
So auction values are, to me, are not fully strict. They're only fully relatively strict, right? They, you have to gauge the auction. And I think that pricing is dynamic in an auction because it's an economic system. So my gut of going uh, the dollar extra is only because I see that, okay, you know, to, to get this extra guy, you know, it's, it's worth it to spend the extra dollar. Everybody's spending three. Uh, it happened last year in GDD. Actually, I was in the league with you, uh, um, Glenn. Oh, yes. uh, I, I partnered with Derek Carty, and uh, you probably know that Derek Carty is a super strict uh, value drafter. I do know that. I've been playing with him for a long time. Correct. And um, Max Scherzer came up, and he was $2 going. He already went a dollar over our value. And I said, Derek, go the extra dollar. Look at what pricing is for starters. It's plus five. If we go Scherzer here, it's plus two. Do it. And he was very uncomfortable, but he did it. And we're very, very glad that we got Max Scherzer, who was one of the top two pitchers or so from this league. Uh, but more so, he was definitely a relative bargain compared to everybody else. So, you know, that's my way to bridge the gap between what everything everyone's saying here. But in general, I am strict to values. In, in the, the general tenant in an auction is if you, ha- you, have you have $260 of money to pay for $260 of value. If you just pay exactly $260 for $260, you are going to have an average team. If you overpay a dollar and overpay a dollar here— you're going to end up with less than $260 of value. You actually need to pay under, under, and under on a lot of players, and that would get you more value. You want to buy $300 of value for $260. Sometimes, though, to get the biggest value combined, you might want to pay the $2 over if at the bottom you're going to get a $7 bargain. So really the auction dynamic does matter. If it's a very hot auction and everyone's going $10 over, why would you want to pay that premium? Because the most you can recover at the bottom is $7. You're just throwing out money. But if the room is pretty even-tempered and yet pitchers are going $3 over, that $1, you'll easily make it up with that $7 bargain on the bottom. Of course, going the extra $2 will save you money in the aggregate. So that that's how I deal with adherence to values. Now, you mentioned, Glenn, that you pretty much come up with, if you say it's uh, 170 90 you pretty much hit that. What do you use or do you use uh, in terms of a hitter versus pitcher split? Like, do you target and say, we're going to get this percentage in every league that you go in? Every league is different. Um, we have a different plan. I mean, we tend to be hitting heavy, uh, largely because we think the Ability, the risk factors in pitching is greater and the ability to find pitchers that come out of nowhere um, you know, is, is greater and our ability to do that, it's a strength that we think we have. But we will always set X, you know, it's somewhere between 190 and 200 on hitting and the remainder on pitching. And it's, you can't say, you know, we have labor AL and the AL pets talent pool is one thing and then we'll have labor nl and the nl talent pool is different and then we'll go to tout wars which is an obp league and only four outfielders and that's a different you know system and then we'll go to gdd which is an auction of 15 team mixed and that talent pool is different so we do set a budget each and every time and it will be a little bit different both in the hitting pitching split and the split among you know we're going to pay for closers we can pay for a starter we're going to pay for um, you know, uh, 
a top flight $40 hitter or are we going to spread it out that it changes for every league? So I think that um, the construction of what you are intending to have of your split in terms of the distribution of dollars really comes from finding where the values are in your league. However, I will say that optically, when you set values on your sheet, oh, this guy is worth this, you need to scale values to almost exactly where the market, the entire league does as a whole. Like, for example, in the NFBC currently, the split is about 61%, 39%. 61 hitters, 39% pitchers. Whether you want to go a few dollars more or less, you should probably go a few dollars more on the hitting. That's fine. But optically, you want to look at a list of players very close to what the market is doing. And I say this because... You know, take the exaggerated case. If you have a league that, I don't know, for some strange reason, they're kind of crazy and they say, we're all going to go 80-20 hitters, right? If you set the market close to 60 or what, you know, whatever you think is going to be and everyone's buying more hitting, you're, you're not going to actually buy much hitting because everybody else is going to spend more. You're going to end up with no hitting. Every hitter will seem expensive, and you'll come up with a lot of great pitching buys. So you'll be competitive in one, you'll be great in one, and not good in the other, you're actually going to end up with an average team. And of course, vice versa is true. If they're thinking it's 80-20 pitchers in an exaggerated case, you're going to seem every pitching price is going to be expensive and every hitting price is going to be is going to be uh, look like a bargain. Optically, you want to be indifferent between seeing bargains. So all prices should be scaled to something to what the market does. Maybe you can per- tilt a, per- a percent or two towards your weakness. If you're better at evaluating hitting, maybe tilt, tilt a little bit more towards pitching to give you a little bit better propensity by pitching if you're weaker at it. But you generally want to stay in that range. You agree, Ruby? I agree, and I think the way the market is this year, I think it's a very interesting to see how things are playing out because right now it seems like a lot of draft capital, a lot of auction capital is going toward closers and that skews everything completely because usually people have a budget of let's say i don't know you, you, you said it you said 6139 right now right now the closer it's crazy you're, you're paying so much more than you would normally anticipate so the whole uh, 55 45 uh, 57 uh, uh, 43 it, it's all thrown out of whack just because the market is setting what's going on and if you don't follow that just like you said if you don't follow that you're not going to get a certain commodity just because you're pricing yourself out glenn what's your take on the closers this year that are much more expensive than they have been in recent past well i think part of that is where we are right now with the lockout with players unsigned, trades that will happen that haven't happened. So the number of closers that you can be confident have a role is smaller than it would be if there was no lockout. Players had emerged as the leaders. I mean, just to give you an example, personally, I think Craig Kimball is going to get traded from from the White Sox, who don't really need him, to a team that's going to make him the closer. So that's not only going to make Kimbrell a closer, and he wasn't, it's going to take whoever the closer was uh, you know, let's, I'm making this up completely, the Tigers, and all of a sudden Gregory Soto is not the, the closer. Um, and that changes it. So I think people are very uncomfortable and have decided that they're going to put more into Hendricks or Hayter or Chapman uh, or Presley or whatever. But I think that's going to come down once we have some more certainty on roles. Um, 
that's sort of how I look at it. But for me, I will tell you that in the last couple of years, the, it used to be you could get a really good closer in, in Labor AL or Labor NL for $16, $17. Now it's 22 or 23 And frankly, we've abandoned doing that. Uh, if we can't find a guy we like at the 16 17 18 range, we just don't do it. And we go after the big time arm who's behind a weak closer and you get three of those guys and you probably get a closer and your starting staff is better for it. Interesting. Yeah. And there's a big debate. I know Ruvain and I disagree on that point a little bit. Um, wanted to ask you since you do mono leagues um, and we've asked this on the show before, but I wanted to get your take, take a guy like Kenley Jansen, who's an unsigned free agent now. And let's assume for now that you believe that he's, it, whatever team he signs, he's going to be the closer, and you've calculated that he's a $19 closer. Let's make it round, $20 closer in a mono league. Okay? He's unsigned. How much would you, are you willing to pay for him in a mono league? And the answer is obviously 10 or less, I think. Uh, well, the answer much? has to be 10 or less. Uh, yeah, because, but just to be clear for your listeners, the reason for that is if you – Let's say we're sitting at Labor AL on Friday, March 4th, and Kenley Jansen is unsigned. If you draft Kenley Jansen, you must cut him if he signs in the National League. So there's already a percentage chance that your draft capital will be wasted, which is why you say if you think it's a 50-50, he ends up in the AL, and he's a $20 player, you can't pay more than 10 For me, I'm probably, you know, down to six or seven because uh, it's just too big a risk. He would have to be my closer two, not my closer one. And and at that point, why am I rolling the dice very much for a guy who's, you know, then I'll just have an overage of saves and hope I can make a trade. I think it's different when you have a true game-changing player. Um, you know, I think it's very different with Freddie Freeman. Now, let's I think the odds of him going to the National League are obviously much higher. I think he's probably yeah. stays in Atlanta if I had a guess. But let's just assume that it was 50-50. That's a game-changing player. Now you're talking about a $35 player. If you can get that guy at 15, like I'll do that all day long. I mean, it just depends on how much upside there is. And what about a guy like Nelson Cruz? Now they just announced as a DH in the National League. He can go either place. You, you apply the same principles? Um, I don't think Nelson Cruz is as big a you know potential upside as as Freddie Freeman, and I worry uniquely about his age and and really terrible second half he had. Understood. But you know if, but I, your point is well taken about the DH. The Kyle Schwarber's become a lot more valuable, uh, who's still sitting on the free agent market, the, et cetera. Again, I think I'm with Ariel on this one. I take whatever the guy, the player I think is worth, I cut it in half. And then I take a discount from that. And if somebody else wants to get out there and take a bigger risk than I'm willing to take, you know, go ahead. It's the same thing that if I'm going to draft Byron Buxton and I think a 160-game Byron Buxton is a $40 player, I'm still only paying about 24 because I think I'm going to lose 40% of the season. So I don't tend to end up rostering those players. Yeah, and, and I think that... Uh... I think you even have to go lower because I, there is a binary risk. And 
you know, if we were playing a million seasons and one year I make it, one year I don't, and it's all aggregated into one pool, then sure, the answer is a half, and you take some discount off of that for profit. But because of the binary risk, I think that you have to be discounting on top of that. Like, take the standard deviation of what a binary risk is and drop it. So I would take the $3 off and then a bargain off of that $3. That, that's what I would say. I will tell you one thing, though. Because, I, because we play in both Labor AL and NL, we have done in the past – Let's say, you know, roster Kenley Jansen at six bucks in each league, knowing that one of our teams is going to be really good because we got a huge bargain. That's a very good point. And Ron Heading Chandler came on. Yeah, Ron Ron Chandler came on the show a couple weeks ago, and he was oh, noting about it. Ron is awesome. Yes, he is good. He was talking about uh, Jacob Degrom, and I, I asked a very similar question in that form. What do you do with Degrom with the risk of is he healthy? Is he not? And his point is that. Um, there's going to be somebody – the reason why his his uh, price is propped up this much, he's going in the second round of draft, is bec- is a lot because in the NFBC you have power drafters. Like they'll, let's say they draft in 20 leagues. Well, they'll get one or two shares of DeGrom, and they'll say, okay, well, I'll take a share of DeGrom because if he is healthy, that's a game-changer, game-winner. And, you know, I won't take him in every league. It's not a great buy, but, you know, one or two leagues, let's do it. And because so many power drafters on the NFBC, somebody's going to take him in a league. His his price just goes up. In a home league, he'll probably go much lower. But because of the nature of having people in multiple leagues, that props up prices of people with binary risks, just as you just said with, uh, hey, we'll take him in both leagues and we'll do well in one of them, you know? Yeah, and look, the Jacob Degrom thing, of course, is in NL only. Your risk of taking Jacob Degrom is much greater than in a twelve-team mixed league, where there is actually a much higher replacement value. If you're in a keeper league, then you have to make sure that no nobody in your keeper league gets Jacob Degrom at too low a price, uh, and then you end up paying. You know, it's a bargain for five years. It really depends on your league format. Yeah, obviously. Um, Talking about market values, and you know, one of the big things that, that I spend a lot of time in is, besides what the ATC value is, is what do I think the market is going to pay? How much do you time do you spend in doing that, and, and what is the general principle of how you put together market value? <laughs> we've been doing this for so long, we just, I, we just inherently, we've been in the, the labor leagues for 20 years, we've been in Tower Wars for, I don't know, 10 or 12 years. Um, we just know generally um within a few dollars what a player is going to go for and if they go for a lot more we don't worry about it we just sit there and go more for us so i think you and ruvain probably have more to offer your listeners on that point we just we don't do that in a scientific way yeah i mean what i do is i look at some uh past drafts uh you get a sense of adp um in terms of Converting it into – because in an auction, you have to convert it to a dollar. Um, there's a couple different ways. One is you take a look at some actual auctions, and that gives you what some average auction values are, which is a good representation of the market if it's similar enough league. Uh, but even if you have straight ADP, you can either use like a logarithmic formula to just scale up numbers. Or what I like to do is I look at past league auction history – and uh, the top player went for 48, and the next player went for 45, the next player went for 44, and the next player went 43. And you get a list of here are the top 260 players or whatever, you know, however many players you draft. And 
You take a look at the ADPs, and you line them up. Well, the number one player gets the top value, 48. The next player gets 47, and that gives you a sense of market values. And uh, we think it's very important because part of what we do is uh, finding the hot spots. You want to jump in, Ruve? Yeah, basically what we want to do is we want to find the areas where we think that people are undervaluing certain certain areas, um, certain positions in a, at a certain money slot so that we're able to t- take advantage of that and, 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 and exploit it basically and make sure that we get those bargains and, and build up the ex- excess value on our rosters. Um, a lot of the times it's kind of hard to do, especially this year, like Glenn, like Glenn, like you mentioned, the lockout, it's so much harder because there's so much, you, you, for the closers, I think like you call it, I'm going to call it artificial inflation, that there's, it's not really supposed to be inflated, but because of circumstances, they're inflated. And that throws off everything else in the market because in those spots in the second and third round where the closers are going, there are other players that should be going there, but they're not. So it's. It's actually changing the whole landscape of the entire draft just by doing that. Yeah. And talking about general auction plan, um, you know, what we do is you take a look at what the ATC value is. You take a look at what the market values are, and you try to find pockets of players that we call hotspots where there are players, a couple players who are have the same position or who have the same statistical makeup, you know, or, you know, 10 steals, 25 homers or whatever, you know, whatever statistic you're looking at. And if there are a few players with that same kind of makeup and are bargains, right, if we're talking about like a $10 player going for only six, um, instead of just focusing on we need a certain player, oh, that player looks good, we write down all four players. It's this player slash this player slash this player. And we want to be in a position that we're indifferent to who we get because we value them similarly. Uh, but we write down what the dollar value they're going for is. Okay, it's a $7 player. We'll take one of these four. The reason why hotspots work is because if, if there's one player that I really like, who knows, who knows if I'm going to get them? I mean, if I'm drafting against Colton and the Wolfman, uh, and they really like a certain player, I might not get them. But if there's four players, the chances of us getting the player at the price we want to pay is much, much, much higher. Uh, and when you find all the hotspots and all the values, then you can piece together the pieces of the puzzle. Okay, looks like the $25 first baseman, that's a small bargain. Looks like the third baseman at the $15 level, that could be a small bargain. Pitchers, there's a spot at the 25 level. There's a couple good players at the 15 that are bargains, four at the, uh, the 10s. And you piece together the prices to add up to 260 that might give you the best chance of getting bargains. So, Glenn, you know, what's what's your general strategy on, on how to prepare and, and the plan that you use to construct your auction plan? So it's it's very similar to what you just said. We'll evaluate the entire pre- player pool and we'll say, okay, you know, where where do we need to invest? We're we're big into the scarcity, so we, we look at that. Um, and can we get it's it's both sides. Which are the positions where there's only really a couple of very good players? So where do we have to put more draft capital to? And which are the positions where, you know what? There's there's second baseman and shortstop that we like at fifteen each and we can probably find an MI and, you know, and an AL only at, at five and we we'll say, okay, we're going to get three players at 35 and maybe we'll go all the way to 35 for one first baseman because I'm not saying that's the plan now, just making it up. And we will do exactly what you said, which is 
we need one of these three guys at first base, one of these five guys for, uh, you know, third base at $15. And we know that those are the only players we're going to really seriously bid on. I mean, if, okay, a $15 player is not one of our guys and the bidding stalls at four, sure, I'll say five. But, you know, that doesn't happen in the expert leagues that, that we play in, basically. So, yes, we'll, we'll have a, a groupings of players that fit the position that we want. One, and that's, it was really well said and really exactly how it's done. And very rarely will we have to deviate from that. Usually only if um, we've gotten such a bargain somewhere else that we now already have our third baseman. We we're going to spend 15, but there was this really good player that went for 10. Then we start shifting it around, but it's what I call a quality problem. Right, right, right. Talk a little bit about uh, nomination strategies and tactics. Um, I mean, that's something that Ruven and I spend a lot of time doing in, in auction is not just so much who do we need, but who do we have to nominate now? Um, let's go to Ruvain first, and maybe you can talk about what you, is uh, the general nomination strategy that you go with. Typically, early on, you want to nominate, or what we do is we nominate someone who we want or someone in the, in the pool of players that we want, like two or three players. We want to see how that goes over in the room. We want to see how much they're going for, so we'll be able to plan out the rest of the auction. That's what you need to do because you need to have a plan. You'll have, everyone has a plan A. They want to start with this person. They have plans about this, and when they have an idea of how much they want to spend on this, and if that doesn't go or it goes over too much, you go to plan B, and you, and you see how the next person goes. And, and that way you can start to really construct your roster the way you want it to be, the way you, can, you feel that you had it planned out. During the course of the auction, you should really try to nominate players from uh, positions that you have already um, so that you can get them off the board because you don't need them. Um, sometimes you want to lower money. I think we do that a lot of times where we'll say, you know what, we have two corners. We don't really need another corner until later. Let's nominate a corner so we get them get the money off the board so we'll lower everyone, get closer to where we are money-wise, that type of thing. And sometimes you also want to nominate someone that you want to make sure that they don't go too cheap. Like a couple of years ago, we did this with Joey Votto. We, we nominated Joey Votto really early and because we thought that people were going to get a real bargain on him, and we didn't want that bargain, so we wanted to collapse the bargain by nominating him early. Right. Glenn, what, what do you do? And um, in general, do you find yourself nominating players that you're looking to acquire or nominating players that you think are overvalued to get money off the board? It depends on where we're sitting. I mean, if we're sitting in a position where we're low in the remaining budget because we've gotten the players and we've rostered them, we're throwing out guys we don't want and to get money out. Um, at the beginning of the process, I agree with Ruvain. A lot of times, I mean, just to use an example from a few years ago, we always had the in the AL the trout plan or the no trout plan. And we were absolutely not going to let trout go for less than whatever it was just round numbers, $40. But we had to know if we were rostering Trout because then we weren't paying for other things. So invariably, if he didn't already come out, when it was our turn, we would call him out. Not because we thought we were going to get a bargain by calling him out early. If he goes over 40, that's fine. Somebody paid a lot, and God bless, and we move on. But we need to know because we don't want to pass on on a key player in Plan B because we we're waiting for 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 Trout. So that's something we would do fairly routinely. Um, the other thing we will do is 
we will call out players because in the smart system and the rules of engagement that we follow, there are players that we simply, there are a lot of players that we simply won't have. So we're perfectly happy to call those players out and let people spend because if there are, th again, let's say there's three very top quality pitchers, starting pitchers at the height of the league, and we know we don't want one of them, then let somebody go ahead and pay that, take their budget down, and take them out of the running for the guys we really want. So we will do that sometimes as well. I think it just, it depends on where you are and what you need. But I agree with Ravain that you have to think that out. It's not just throw some name out. And the last thing I will say is a lot of people try to do, oh, I'll just call out a $1 player. No one will care and he'll go through. And I don't think more often than that, that doesn't work. When I have $3 left, I'm very hesitant to say two. When I have $260 left, I'm very willing to say two. So I don't think that works. And I, and, and we never do that. No, those are good points. Um, I mean, you, you, to touch on what you said, you were talking earlier about, you know, the propensity to call out people who you don't want. You're more inclined to do that when you have not enough money, where you have spent money and you want to get money off the board and you want to spend you want to call out more people that you might want if you have a lot of money that's true in general i think that you should aim to be somewhere in the middle of money wise for everybody and for the simple reason of you want to be able to play in every single part of the draft um i don't i never do the strategy of let's just bid on a couple of 45 dollar players at the beginning and all right i want a 45 dollar player i want another 45 dollar player you might have pockets of the auction where even though there are great bargains that come up, you can't bid on them. Um, and I think that managing your budget throughout the draft, throughout the auction, is very important uh, to stay somewhere in the middle of the range of people. Now, you mentioned one thing that Ruben and I do very well, which we refer to as plan A, plan B, in that if, if a lot of your plan or if you think that the biggest bargain available in the outfield tier is Mike Trout, you have to know whether you're going to get him because if the next guy comes out first and you don't know, is this enough of a bargain? Is it going to be more than Trout? Not enough. If you take that other bargain, you'll never know about Trout, whereas you think Trout might be even a better bargain. So if Trout comes out nominated first, that sets your plan up. You're able to act a lot better. Um, the other thing we do is called the economic box nomination is where you know if, if there are four – players in the tier you know you, there's everyone agrees all right after the, the three elite starters there's four real next ones uh, and everyone you just know that everyone values them similarly happens to be over and I, I've studied this that the very last pitcher or player in that tier nominated goes for higher than they would normally do even if they're normally a dollar or two value lower than the rest of the corresponding tier. And that's because of the economics. It's because when you have a small supply of something and a high demand, well, that just shoots the price up. So if you like a player in a tier, even if it's the last one, second one, whatever it is, nominate them first. Go for that one because otherwise you won't get that bargain. It's going to be artificially getting rid of. Of course, once the, your player comes up and if you buy them, 
it's a double whammy because it's even better for you because now all the other pitchers are going to go for more than they should. So you pay less and everybody else pays more. So um, the general thought for me in terms of nomination is don't waste them. There has to be a purpose for every nomination. Usually it's to obtain information, it's for a strategic bargain, or it's to change the economics in the room in your favor for certain positions or for certain scoring categories. Um, now, uh, I wanted to bring up that, uh, Glenn, in, in GDD last year, a league we play in, uh, I noticed an interesting thing. And, you know, sometimes there are funny ways people nominate, but um, Ian Kahn was uh, nominating a bunch of designated hitters. Uh, he just, every time he, he had a nomination, designated hitter, throw a designated hitter. I noticed this when this happened. I didn't really know why. He told me later, and he um, the reason was, and he told me I can say this on the show, by the way, um, Shohei Otani, he wanted him. And he wanted fewer teams to be able to compete for him in the auction uh, because if you blocked your DH, if you picked up Franmil Reyes or Nelson Cruz, you would not be able to roster Otani and use him in the DH slot. So he threw out a bunch of people just to get the the teams off the board and have only half the league being able to vote on him. Uh, and that worked out in his favor. Uh, in our league, GDD, he was down to literally just <laughs> me and him. I and fell for it. Yeah, yeah, I guess. I was there in the end bidding. I think we bid him up to, I don't know, whatever, $17 or whatever it was. And he told me he, he was willing to go to 40 Uh so uh, that worked out for him. Uh, what do you think of that? And are there any any other funny nomination strategies that you've come yeah, across? Yeah, look, I think that makes a lot of sense. On the other hand, we got a $20, I think it was, Giancarlo Stanton, who was very much worth more than $20. So I can't really complain. Um, or something like that. I don't remember exactly what it was. Um, you know, I think that there are... It's really clever to do things like that. Um, but you have to be a little careful. You can do it at the beginning because you're not going to get stuck with, oh, you know, $1 or $2 on, on Stanton. You're not going to get stuck with him. Obviously, he's going to go higher. Later in the draft, when you have your eye on one of the two remaining first basemen and you call out the guy you don't want, hoping someone else will bid you up and fill up their spot, you might get stuck with him. See, so it doesn't work as well toward the end of the draft. So we just, we want to call out players either that helps us inform whether we're on plan A, plan B, or plan C, or we want to test the market on a position or a skill set, or we just want to get money out. And since we're fairly aggressive at the beginning of most auctions, we spend probably about two or three hours just getting money out. Right, right. Um, you know, I generally don't like that kind of nomination strategy because, I mean, it takes six or seven nominations, and you could get so much better use out of your information. Uh, I mean, listen, if Otani won you the league, God bless, but it takes seven nominations to get that kind of strategy to go. Uh, or, you know, people just say, I'm just going to nominate pitchers, starting pitchers. They're all overpriced. I think that maybe for one or two, but you you need – those nominations are precious, and there's going to be something else – different in the room for what you need. Um, Ruvain, talk about freeze bid nominations. Um, are you in favor of freezing the room at a high-ish price and seeing if you can do it? And if so, do you do it early in a draft? Do you do it in the middle? How does freeze, freeze bids work for you? 
freeze beds. I think we I think we've done it a couple of times. The I think the best time to do it is not in the very beginning, but a couple rounds in when people are started getting a little bit comfortable and then people are starting to spend their money. At that point, you can just throw out a bid and hopefully it sticks. And and usually we only do it once a, a draft. It's very hard to do it more than more than once, just because people start to figure it out and they're like, oh, they're trying to do it again. Let's let's make sure they don't get it because maybe they know something that we don't know. We did this with Raphael Devers, I think it was two years ago in labor. We threw, I believe we threw it out for $24. Um, this was about in either the our third or fourth, nom- oh, I think it was the fourth nomination. First, first we, nomination. It was, it was our first one? Okay, yeah. so, so, so then I'm completely wrong with this. But the first one, we just threw it out. We said, let's see if this sticks. And it stuck. And nobody was willing to spend more than the $24 that we were. Yes, we had the cap on it. We were planning going. We, we were willing to go higher than that. But when you do a freeze bid, you have to make sure that when you do the freeze bid, you're leaving yourself some wiggle room to go up a one or at least a couple more dollars. If it's two more dollars and someone bids and someone bids on top of you, and you you lost you lost the guy you're trying to get the freeze bid on. So you really have to pick the right number, and you have to be willing to be go over a little bit if you're going to do that. Otherwise, you're going to lose the player. I'll ask you this question a little bit differently, Glenn. What do you start a player's bid on? Uh, do you start a player's bid really close to where you want it to end up? Do you start it very low, somewhere in the middle, somewhere random? What do you use in your bidding tactics? Well, I mean, obviously, it's your, when you're at the very end, it's completely different. But right. for most of most of it, you know, a number that is typically we'll just throw out a number that's respectable. You know, you know, Max Scherzer for a dollar. It's just dumb. You know what I mean? It just wastes time. Um, but I don't want to put out a number so high that either I'll get stuck with a player I don't want, doesn't fit my plan, or is going to make it less likely that I can get a bargain on someone. Because the, the mentality is people want to be in the action, so they want to bid. So if you've got a $40 player, to start him at 35 he's probably going to go over 40 because people want to be in it. So... I'm going to start that $40 player at 20 or 25, let people get, get it out of their system. Um, and then, you know, still hope that it comes in at 35 instead of 40. Um, toward the end of the draft, I'm always calling out ones or twos. If it's a player that I really want, I might say two, because it's much harder to say three late in the draft. You have so much, so little capital left. And the last thing at the end of the draft is if I know, that there's only one other guy who needs a first baseman and I've got $5 left and he's got three, I'm going to start at three and just say, you're out. <laughs> right, right. Yes, I mean, it does matter where you are in, in the auction. Uh, I think this is actually very important. Um, you know, in general, I don't want to start at all that high because I want to leave room to get a nice bargain. Um, but I actually feel, I feel strongly on you should start with a number the same number again and again. Uh, if a player, we're talking about $30 players, start 18, 18, 18, 18. It actually hypnotizes people. They're not going to think, oh, this guy really likes a player that, that, you're, that, that you're coming. Oh, Ariel really likes him or Ariel doesn't like him. If you say the same number, whatever it is, it almost appears random, 18, 18. It puts them to sleep as far as they don't think about what you're doing. Um, if when it gets later in the room, let's say we're talking about ten to twelve dollar players, four, 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 and they just get used to me saying the same number, 
they have no idea what I'm doing. It's my poker way of uh, distracting the audience and just having them not pay attention to me. Occasionally, I don't like doing the freeze bids, but I like the doing the two under. You bid somebody high enough so that you're just about to get him, and you're okay with going that extra dollar, but you don't give enough time for so many other teams to be in on it, right? The danger of starting a player too low is now people start looking at him. Do I want him? Do I think? I don't want people to think. I want one person to think, say, ah, I'll go a dollar more. I go th- that dollar extra, but nobody else wants to go. So I think that depending upon what you need at a certain time, you can do those two unders. Otherwise, I like the same random number on and on. And obviously, I agree with Glenn at the bottom. You know, you're doing strategic $2 or $3 bids, and usually just one depending upon what you need. I also think that freeze bids tend to work better when the draft is in person as opposed to being online. Online totally freeze agree. bids are so yeah. much harder to do when you're in person. It's completely different. You can call it out in a funny way or in a different way or a very firm way, and then you, you, the person, the rest of the room knows, you know what? This person may be willing to go to a number that I'm not willing to go to. Agree. What about increments? So if a player is you know, going uh, 15, 16, 17, do you like sticking with incrementing by one, or do you find it a good tactic to jump it by two sometimes? It's an it's a great tactic to jump it two or maybe even three to just put it into it. Um, and I, we do that all the time. And, and a lot of times they'll be, you know, bidding 19, 20, 21, 22, you know what, 25. Do, do you find that it <laughs> you know, works more time yes. than not? It does. It works often. I've not studied whether okay. it's more time than not. But I'm comfortable either way because if 25 is my last number, I'd rather, and I want the player, I'd rather get him at 25 than risk losing him. And if he goes over, that means somebody's really paid more than they want to pay. So I'm usually happy either way, and I know I've done what I'm going to do. Um, But occasionally... I will say 27 in that circumstance, just so people know, you know, it's not really, I'm not going to stop every time I do a jump, do it, do a freeze bid or a jump bid. Yeah. You know, I found over the years that it actually doesn't work that much, meaning works for most us. Of the time it doesn't. <laughs> well, I think that less than half the time it works. But to your point, I think it's one of those that it doesn't actually work, but makes you feel better. And just for the reason you say, like if you if you jump bid and the guy goes above, well, thank God I got more money off the board. I get it. I must have done it right. And if you won it, well, thank God I won that guy. All right, a dollar more, but I I won him. So it always makes you feel better. Although whether a player bids over you or not, I think it happens less than half the time. Even I think it really doesn't matter. I think most of the time you'll gain a dollar over the course of an auction by just going increments. Actually, I found. And and this actually works better online than in person because if you do a two dollar increment online, someone may accidentally click next dollar, next dollar, and all of a sudden they're spending three dollars more. That's you know that that happens a lot more online than it does in person. That's interesting. Do you find that bidding on the nines or bidding on the zeros or just it actually works? Like if you say 19, there's a less of a propensity to go to 20? Yes. It's just human nature. And, and there are going to be people in the room who are religious to their values. This guy is not a $20 player. This guy is not a $30 player. So I th- I find that that does matter. Of course... It doesn't work all the time, but it definitely adds a mental barrier to going higher. 
It's funny. I've actually noticed, so I think this is true, but I think the number is not 9. I think it's 0. I found that if you say an even 20, there's less of a propensity to go to 21. I agree. 19 to 20. I agree. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yes. But there is a barrier. It is true. I just think it's on the zeros, not the nines. Um, which, if you're jump bidding, that's maybe a good. If you have 18, jump to 20. That might be more. Well, that's what I was than, saying, right? We jump to 20. We jump 25, 30. We tend to do it on a round number. But if you're nine, if you're 19 and jump to 21, it's a lot harder for someone to go to 22. Also. Um, but I, I I would say that if you're at 19, going to 20 is probably the better. But if you're at 18, maybe the jump to 20 works. So just because of the round numbers, you know. Um, but anyway, well, most of our players are, are valued on the fives. <laughs> mm, right, 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 right. What about price enforcing? Uh, what, are your, what are your thoughts on that? Never, never, never really, never, never, really. Okay. So let's be clear about this. If it's a player that we want, right? Let's say we have four first basemen we really like, and this is the fourth of the first baseman, but it's going to inexpensively. That we might do because it's still technically part of the plan, but we never just push a price up for a guy who's not in the plan. Just never do it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you should never push a player that you can't handle on your roster if you won them at that price. Right, you may not love a player, but all right. So I got this guy instead. You know, I, I just don't want to be in a danger of getting a guy that I can't work with, like a you know a third catcher. And oh my god, he have to use him as our DH, uh, which I think happened once That's uh, to us, Ruben. Yeah, yes, that it was happened to us. Yes, yeah, yes. happened to be the number two catcher, and uh, the, the our catcher got hurt the very first day of the season, so it worked out for some reason. But yeah, it's a disaster. But I think that price enforcing is a good idea if you can do it. I mean, in theory, you want people to pay more than they should. Look, when I'm doing an auction with uh, Jeff Zimmerman, I I just stare the guy. The guy is not looking at me. I, you know when he's gonna bid, and I see all right, he's gonna bid. I right, just go a dollar more. Go ahead, Jeff. I, I think it's a good tactic to just get a, a dollar up if you're well. Sure if you know someone's going to bid, it's a, it's it's a little bit different. But here's the here's the thing: it depends on your software. If you're online, RT Sports has the max bid button, which which doesn't mean bid the most your team can afford. It means the computer. If you put in thirty max bid, the computer will keep bidding for you until it goes over thirty, or the bidding stops and you win the player. So you can you know, sort of price and force just by what you program the computer to do. Yeah, no, that's true. That is true. Um, it's also dangerous to do that because you can give up a lot of value that way too. No, you got to You gotta yeah. be, you know, if I think the guy's a $37 player, I put 30 Like, I'm not yeah. taking any chances. Right, know? right, right. Um, all right, I mean, we, we did so many topics on auction. Before we go to players, uh, any last words on auction? Any tidbits you want to mention? I mean, we gave so many tidbits so far, but anything else, Glenn? Yeah, I mean, again, the key the key is you have to have plans A, B, C, and D, and they have to be realistic. It, it's if you make a plan that you think you're going to roster Trey Turner at twenty seven dollars, the plan is worthless. So not only do you need to have multiple pivot plans, they need to be realistic. That's good advice. All right, we're on to our ATC player discussion. Uh, today we're going to start on outfielders. And before we start, it is time for the Injury Gurus Trivia of the Week. So the first outfielder we're, we're going to discuss today is Ronald Acuna Jr. 
and I have to give it to for him because as I was doing some research, this number just popped my eyes right away. He played in 82 games last year, which is basically half a season. He had 24 home runs, 17 stolen bases, 72 runs scored with 360 plate appearances, which is about half of what he had in 2019. If he would have played the rest of the season and not gotten injured, where would he have ranked in all the counting stats if you extrapolate the full year? You're talking for each individual start, one? Yes. Start with home runs. Where would he have ranked in home runs? All right. Glenn? First. Uh, Correct. First. There you go. That's first. He was the, top, the league leader was had 48 home runs. He had 24. Where would he be ranked in RBIs? Fifth. I'm going to say 25th. 15th. He would have ranked 15th. Hmm. He didn't have a lot of RBIs last year. What about runs? I'm going to stick with fifth. I'll go with third. He would have led the league by 14. Wow. That's how many runs he was on pace for. He had 72. Think about it. 72 through 82 games. And what about stolen bases? Third. Eighth. Third. He would have liked oh, exactly right. third. Oh, he would have 34 yeah. stolen bases. So think about it. If he would have played a full year, wouldn't he have been the number one pick over this year over Trey Turner or over uh, Fernando Tatis? With all these the numbers number one that we know, if we know, that, <laughs> yeah. if we know he's healthy, why wouldn't he be the number one outfielder? Why wouldn't he be the number one or number two drafty? In my opinion, I think he looks healthy if the season gets delayed one or two weeks and he's able to be 100 percent healthy and you see him running and not having any issues with it he could be the number one player and people are taking him the end of the first round right now so i think he is a great grab at where he is right now glenn thoughts on him uh look i agree with you the quote if he's healthy but there's two elements to if he's healthy one is he physically healthy and then two usage are they going to prevent him from stealing bases in the first month, first two months, first three months, which is a significant risk. And if Acuna is the same player you're talking about, 40 home runs, um, you know, a lot of runs scored, a lot of ribbies, but is only a 20 steal for the whole season guy, still probably there. But then what happens if they say, all right, we're a team that's pro that wants to repeat we're going to pull back on him. We're only going to play him five days a week in the first half or something like that. Then all of a sudden you're contending with some, you know, lower plate appearances. So there's risk there that's not only purely physical health related, which I think is why he's dropping down. And again, it's a function of the lockout and not seeing a lot of media reports. If, if he's running around and stealing bases in spring training games at the end of March, he's going to go first or th between first and third, you know, in the, in, in the drafts. Yeah. If you're drafting today, he's he's undervalued. And I think, Ruven, you set up the trivia today very well to express the point that, I mean, he's really a, a first-round, maybe 1-1 one, one, one type overall pick. Now, here's the interesting wrinkle here. I think the biggest concern we have in his health is stolen bases. Now, uh, most people don't realize this, but stolen bases are not acquired in the season evenly. You don't have the same number in April and May and June and July that you actually have more stolen bases in general for a player coming in the second half. April is a big month, but then August and September, the bulk of stolen bases actually come from that. 
Uh, like Starling Marte got traded. Maybe that had to do with it, but almost all his stolen bases are there. Let's look at Acuna. His best year where he stole 37 bases in 2019, he stole 13 in the first half, 24 in the second half. To me, the fact that he's hurt and maybe coming back and maybe he won't be fully there to run, I think won't affect his stolen base production as much as you think because they would have been tilted more towards the end of the season anyways. And, of course, every day the lockout continues, the more April games get pushed off, well, the bigger percentage he has of the year in general to accumulate his stats. So for those reasons, I think that he is more undervalued than people think. Uh, I think Acuna is a really good buy. If you get him the 13th pick of the draft, which is what his ADP is, that's a solid, solid buy in my opinion. And I have two more things to say about him. First of all, he's an aggressive player at, by nature. When he's playing, he's not going to be playing at 80%. He's going to be playing at 100%. And number two... If the season does get delayed, his value will go down because if the season gets delayed, uh, Commissioner Manfred, however you want to uh, describe him besides that, he said that losing any games is a catastrophe. It's the worst thing possible. So what that means is they will probably try to play all the games, which means an increase in double headers like we had in 2020. And if he's coming off of an injury and the Braves want to be safe with him, he may be ended up missing a lot of the games just because because they have double headers. Maybe. It's a great maybe. point. I think it's a great point. Question, who has more injury risk for this year, Glenn? Ronald Acuna or Fernando Tatis? I'm going to go with Tatis. He's had a number... The Acuna injury is something that the medical community understands. The ACL, they know how to fix it. Guys get back on the football field in a great condition. And that's obviously more you know physically worrisome for the knees than even baseball is. But Tatis, you know, the shoulder is is really a concern, and the way in which he swings, I think he's going to miss more time. He's going to miss time. Is he good enough to make himself worth it anyway? Sure. But if you're talking about 1-1 overall, I'm not doing it. But what about now with the DH in the National League? Doesn't that help Tatis, that he can play less of the field and be able to rest that shoulder if he does get hurt and not be nah. put on the IL, but he can still bat? They're not Tatis. So not I think he, he gets hurt swinging the bat so hard, though. That's the worry, right? Well, he, he did change his swing to try to – and he, he didn't hurt himself when he changed his swing, so – well, look, I get it. I, the question was, who's a bigger risk? I think Tatis a bigger risk, and I'm not going 1-1. If agree. he's still there at pick three or four, totally different story. Yeah. The point about Acuna also is that, you know, he's a bargain according to ATC at his current projection, and that's only 500 at-bats. He might get 600 at-bats. Uh, it's very possible. I think he's a big bargain uh, here. Uh, I think he'll outperform his proje- He has a good shot at outperforming his projections, and he doesn't have to to make money, is what I'm saying. Uh, talk about Brian Reynolds, who ATC has a couple-dollar bargain. Reynolds is a guy who consistently hits for a high BABIP. We're talking like a 330 career BABIP. Strikeout rate under 20%, so we're talking about a high batting average floor. 2020, he was bad. It looks just like a total fluke. Maybe he had an underlying I- injury because everything else he's done in his career has looked differently. Uh, he is... He was he's worth $25 last year. He's only going for $17 equivalent auction right now in the seventh round. Uh, and using ATC's volatility metrics, he has very little parameter risk. He has a very low inter-SD, which means projections 
agree that he's a good player. So I think he's safe as well as undervalued. Glenn, what are your thoughts on Brian Reynolds for 2022? So I really like Reynolds as a player. I mean, I love the fact that, you know, 11.6% walk rate last year, in addition to that low strikeout rate, switch hitter. He's hit 300 at every single level he's played from, you know, rookie ball to the major leagues. He's 27 years old, which is, you know, squarely in his best years. But here's the one thing I am worried about, and it is the trade risk. He's not the kind of player who's going to get traded to, you know, the Yankees or the Blue Jays in on July 31st to be a backup. But it is hard to get traded to a new team, change where you live, change your managers, your coaches, your, you know, your teammates and, and colleagues, and produce at the same level. I mean, look at what happened to Adam Frazier when he got traded. So to me, there is a trade risk with Brian Reynolds, and you have to take at least a little bit of a discount because the team is going to be bad. And yes, he put up very strong numbers, but the reality is if you're hitting second or third for the Blue Jays, you're going to get more runs and ribbies than if you're hitting second or third for the Pirates, and you have to take that into account. Ruben? I don't think he's that much of a trade risk. I mean, he's not going to be a free agent until 2026. And hopefully the hopefully the Pirates will be good by then because usually they go in cycles or whatever, I guess, 15, 20 years also, just like the Mets usually do. So he, they should be on there on the way up around that time. So I don't think he's as much as a trade risk. Um, but he plays for the Pirates, and just that alone is a turnoff for a lot of people. They say, oh, he's playing for the Pirates. The Pirates are going to be bad. They're not going to have a good offense. But they're not also they're not going to be shut out every game. The Pirates are going to still score runs. I mean, he, he'll get you 25 home runs with five stolen bases thrown in there. He'll get you 80-plus runs. His K rate continues to go down while his walk rate goes up. His launch angle has increased every year since 2019. So he's figuring it out. He's 27. Usually t- between 27 and 29 is the peak year for power for, for outfielders and, and for power hitters. So I think there's still some unlocked talent that's there. Yeah, I agree. I was only saying that you got to take a small discount. Two, two, three dollars off your auction price because the team is just not going to be very good. I agree they're going to score runs, and I agree he produced on the bad team last year. I'm just saying that when you're comparing him to a player on the Dodgers or, you know, something like that, you have to apples to apples say one is not as a desirable situation. But it's only a small adjustment. I still like the player a lot. I'm going to argue that you're gonna you should add some auction dollars to him because he's a, quote, many-paths-to-value player. He reminds me somewhat of Alex Gordon, if you remember from a couple of years ago, where— More than a couple. <laughs> more than a couple, uh, when he was good, at least. Ten years um, ago. Ten years yeah, ago. Yeah, all right, all right, ten years ago. Uh, you know, similar type player where we're talking a handful—we're talking a half a dozen steals. We're talking a good average, homers. And even if the player doesn't succeed in one, he'll usually make up for it somewhere else to hold his value. I, I see it as uh, he's a safer pick to hold value because he's good at—he's not great at everything or anything, but he's very good at everything. And so, all right, so he won't steal this year. He'll hit a couple more homers. He Maybe he loses some batting average. Well, it means that he'll make up for it in power or vice versa. So I think he's more stable than, than you think. And at that stage, in the seventh round, I'm looking more for holding value than I am for gaining. So I'm willing to go the extra dollar um, for him for that reason. Uh, last two here. A couple of Yankees. I saved the Yankees for you, Glenn. 
Very Aaron nice Judge and Giancarlo Stanton both are slight bargains according to the ATC projections. Both have had injury history in the past. I think Stanton's is the more serious, being the soft tissue type stuff. Judge seems a lot more healthy. Um, what are your thoughts on the two players, and what are your interest in them in drafts for 2022? So they're very difficult players to value. But in, in you know getting ready for the show, I took a look at Aaron Judge, and, and everything I saw was impressed by. You know, you take a look at last year, 287, and his BABIP was you know fairly below his, his career number, which says that he might have been closer to 300 if his BABIP was, was typical for him. He was he, he showed a much more you know mature approach at the plate. He wasn't just pulling everything. He went oppo more often than he ever did before. And obviously his numbers are huge and he's he's the face of the franchise and all of that. So I don't think he's going anywhere. You're not gonna see him leave the friendly confines of, of Yankee Stadium to hit those, you know, pop ups that are home runs in right field. Um, but here's the thing that makes me really higher on judge than I was you know, before I started prepping for the show. Even in the years where he had, you know, some injury issues and only had 450 or 475 plate appearances, in each of those years, he still hit 27 homers and knocked in 75 runs. And that's with the injury. So you got to figure that whoever you put in for him, your player that you're acquiring, your stats for that player are going to be over 30 and, and over 90. And so the risk of Aaron Judge to me is not really that high. So I'm very high on Aaron Judge, and I'm a believer in contract year issues. So uh, I think the Yankees are going to pay him, and I think he's going to earn it. Stanton is a much bigger question for me. Obviously, the talent is there. And I want to put this question to Ruvain. Stanton ended up playing the outfield more last year than he had any time with the Yankees and was his healthiest year in years. Is there something to the way you prepare to, you know, play in the outfield versus just DH that maybe is keeping him healthier? Yes. I actually listen to every week. Um, Aaron Boone on the local radio show has a, has a spot, and I listen to him every week, and they always kept asking him, when is Stanton going to play the outfield? When is Stanton going to play the outfield? Then they started complaining that Stanton doesn't run full out to first base. So what Aaron Boone actually said is that they prep him every day as if he's going to play the outfield, but they told him when you run to first on a ground ball, run at 80%. Don't run full out. We need you. We need you on the team. We need you to stay healthy. So don't don't bust it. Do do whatever you have to. Just jog down the line. I don't care because you'll get out on those grounders. You're not going to beat out those grounders, but we need you to hit those home runs. So the Yankees have actually figured out how to keep Stanton healthy. And that's and plus this year because he played 26 games in the outfield, he's not going to clog your DH. So you can move him around a little bit more. So he's a little more palatable to have on your roster. Aaron Judge, I'm I actually I'm a little more down on him than than, than you are, Glenn, only because. He's only been healthy really two for two full seasons over the past five seasons. He's not going to get as much speed. I don't think he wants to get hurt. He's in a contract year, so I don't think he's going to run as much as he did. He's not going to give you that much stolen bases anyway, but his speed is going to be limited. And I think you can get someone about 40 picks later in the draft, someone like a J.D. Martinez, whose numbers are very similar. Batting average a little bit lower, but he can get you this almost, you know, maybe five or six less home runs, maybe uh, maybe a couple less RBIs. But if J.D. Martinez has a good year, he can match Aaron Judge's numbers. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I hear you. The one thing I will say about Judge is 
one of those years, it was just a fastball that hit him on the hand. You know, that's just bad luck. That's different than the soft tissue injuries and the things he's had. But one of the years where he lost, you know, six weeks worth of time was because of a broken bone in a hand from a fastball, which I don't think is one of those things that repeats that often. No, it, it, it really doesn't. And so you can say the same thing about Stanton when he got hit in the face with that with the with the pitch also. He had that same issue. But think about this from, from Stanton. If he has two more years of thirty five home runs or more, which is not out of the realm of possibility, he will be at four hundred home runs already for his career. He is three forty seven. Is he a Hall of Famer? He look, if he stayed healthy for the next five or seven years, sure he could be. Even if for, just but for two, and he gets he gets to he gets no. to the four hundred plateau. Four hundred doesn't get him there. No, Five hundred no. gets him there. Yeah, he, uh-huh. he needs okay. a little bit more longevity. Listen, if David Wright stayed healthy, I think he's in the Hall of Fame. By the way, um, unfortunately. <laughs> hey, yes. listen, I have to have some Met love. I have we have some I'm talking about Yankees here, you know. Well, um, yeah. listen, you're, listen, Robinson Cano is coming back, and you know I oh, have to have Robinson oh. Cano on my teams. <laughs> That's right. Robinson uh, Cano, Robinson Cano in the in the, in the Dominican Republic League this year has bat I think in the low two thirties with one extra base hit. Oh so no, don't he expect hit for too a very high average. Hit, no, I think he hit for a high average with only one home run. No, it, it was it wasn't it wasn't a high average. I, I looked at the numbers recently, and I'm following because there's a whole bunch of injured players who are actually playing down there. His numbers are not that great. He's not something I'm looking forward to, and I. I actually expect the Mets to actually probably cut him by the middle of the year if he's no. not performing. Yeah, and, and eat it because they have an owner who can do that. If there was no DH, I'd agree, but I think he's going to be the Mets DH this year. You know? Um, as far as Aaron Judge and Stanton go, from my opinion, um, Judge is, uh, they're both pretty stable according to ATC volatility metrics. If anything, Judge has a very large negative skew. To remind the listeners, um, the volatility metrics are how different projections are from each other, and skew is if if any is one is there one outlier projection up or down. With him, there's one really low projection. So, for example, for homers, the underlying projections are 38 homers, 39, 40, 41, 31, 40, 38, and then there's one 32. Um, who do you believe when when there's all of them are at 40? Which one of these is not like the other? Uh, the low one is not like the other here, which means that if you're following wisdom the crowds, maybe throw that one out. So th- whatever the ATC average is, he's probably higher. And my research has shown that negative, large negative skews means he's better. Um, I think he's super stable. I think this is a 40-ish home run type player, 100 RBIs, 100 runs, good average. Uh, this is a solid player. And actually, he steals bases. He stole six last year. He's stolen nine in his career one time. Uh, I, I don't think he's injured anymore. There's no reason not to like him, and he's a bargain. Stanton worries me with the injuries, um, but uh, listen, he's he's going for a $2 bargain. Maybe he's over the injury issues. He has low projections, volatility projections, still agree on him. They even agree on the at-bats. That's what the interesting thing is. Well, my projections from automatic or manual systems are saying he's going to get over 500 at-bats. Uh it might be the year to get him cheap. I don't know if I would pay an eighth-round price, but 10th, 9th, 10th, I think that's a nice bargain I'm willing to take. Glenn? Yeah, look, I, I agree with that. It, it, I don't really love clogging up the DH spot, as Ravain said, that's not a problem anymore. So, I, I look, 
well, I'm going to take a little bit of an injury risk reduction because that's what we do for, for a guy like Judge or Stanton. And I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to take the ACTC projections. I'm going to take 20% off of them. And if I can get the guy at that price, I'm in. If I can't, I won't. That's how I'm going to approach it. Yeah, no, same here, same here. And so let me just say, uh, I want to go back to Robinson Cano. I'm not sure what you're what, what you guys are looking at, but I'm on BaseballReference.com, and it says he, you know, 300 in the regular year and 417 in the Dominican uh, Caribbean series. So I just that think was, he's not that was actually power. early early on. Early on, he did very poorly. He got his average up a little bit, and he played better toward the end. But there are no extra base hits. There was no power scene. There was one clip of that him hitting a true. home run to dead center field, but there's no power. And when you draft Cano, what do you think of? You think of power, and, and you're getting him for power. If you're getting him for, for, for a regular average, I don't want him as my DH. I'd rather have a Luis Arias who can play another position and get me that average. It'd be cheaper. Well, I can get a, if I can get a player for $5 in an NL only that's going to hit 300 over 400 plate appearances, I'll take it any day of the week. Yeah. So uh, it's been a long show, but I want to do one mailbag question. Um, if you have sent in a mailbag question, we'll get to yours hopefully next week or so. Uh, um, so please keep sending them in. But I will send. Uh, I will uh, pick one here. Uh, Michael asks, how do you balance player value with categorical need? Specifically, do you pay more for stolen bases even though the player value may not call for it? I have trouble balancing value and stolen base needs. Glenn, how do we tackle Michael's question? So, yes, you will pay more if you put yourself in that position. What we try to do is get some stolen bases from almost every player we pick up so that we don't force ourselves to pay a lot more for those bags toward the middle of the end of the draft. But at the but if you're telling me You've got no speed. Your team is otherwise good. You've got Miles Straw as a $10 player. You're going to end up paying 16 for him because you just absolutely have to. Yeah, you're going to end up doing that. I mean, I'm making up the numbers to illustrate. But so sometimes you just have to do that. You have to pay a scarcity premium. And your plan going into the auction has to be avoid putting yourself in that situation where that scarcity premium for the bags is too much. That, that is very good advice, and I agree with everything there. I'll also say that, and we're talking auction this show, but in a draft, one other thing you can do is just pick a stolen base guy or a combo guy early on, and then you're not paying the premium because everybody's a first-round value, uh, and get you get your base there. And uh, I agree with Glenn. You know, get Plan to get guys who have some stolen bases everywhere. It's also less risky, right? If, if one guy gets hurt, you don't lose 20 steals. You lose five, lose seven far less risky for your aggregate composition of your stats. Ruben? But stolen bases, you can get on the on the waiver wire so much easier. Listen to the guys who had 20 or more stolen bases last year. Tyler Wade, Garrett Hampson, Austin Slater, Lorenzo Cain had 20 stolen bases. My, uh, these people, you can get on the waiver, so you don't necessarily have to pay that high premium, but if you get the balanced player, you're not just going to get the stolen bases. You, you spread it out like you guys are saying, that's the way to do it. But I think it's easier to get stolen bases on the waiver wire than it is to get saves on the waiver wire. So if, if anything, if you want to pay that premium for for relievers that they're going right now, then you can spend that a little extra on, on that because you can get the stolen bases later. I don't know. Do, do you agree with that, Glenn, that you can get stolen bases on the waiver wire? I mean, all the players you mentioned are pl some platoon players, some players who stink. Uh, do you want them being on your roster? And, I mean, if you're desperate and you have injuries, I get it, Ruvain. But, I don't know, Glenn, do, do you find that you can get speed on the waiver wire? I mean, 
well, technically everything Ravane said is true. Yeah, you could, yes, could have picked right? up, you know, Tyler yes. Wade or Austin Slater or whatever. But I agree, these are players you would not necessarily want. But if 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 in Ruvain's defense, if your working theory is, I've picked up Aaron Judge, I'm not getting 700 plate appearances. I'm getting 550. I'm still getting my 30 homers, and my other 150 plate appearances are coming from Tyler Wade, and I'm adding the steals. If you do sort of a combo player, it might work. It's just hard to do that balance, but you're right. It could work. Yeah. No, uh, definitely. Uh, yeah, everything you said is true, obviously. Uh, but uh, it's a, And as Glenn said, it's really about getting it to work. It could all work, um, and it depends on how your roster is constructed. But I, I think that you should not try to do that. You should try Glenn's plan of getting uh, players who have stolen bases along the way, pay for somebody at the top. Um, but, yeah, recognize that there are some instances that you do have to pay a small market premium. To me, if everybody's paying $4 over, if everybody is picking players around earlier, if you just pick a player a half round earlier, then you're getting a market relative bargain, even though in totality they're a full round paying a premium, if that makes sense. No, it does make sense. And in drafts, uh, I, I need some speed and it's a decent amount of speed in the first three rounds. You can't leave the first three rounds without having at least some significant stolen base uh, basis for the rest of your and, team. And that's, that's a lot of reason why they're in the top three rounds, because they have some stolen bases. The power guys you can get later, but a lot of the first three rounds, they're combo guys. They're 20-20 guys. They're guys who can steal or 30 bases. So you, you can do that if you want to, but as long as you're able to balance your roster and do it properly and make sure that everything fits. This is, when you're doing an auction, it's a big puzzle, and if you have a square peg trying to fit into a triangle peg, it's not going to work. Yeah, listen, I, I agree. I'm, I'm in a uh, best ball, 12-team mixed league best ball draft right now in RT Sports that we do with our listeners, and I had the, uh, the eighth pick overall, and I decided I'm going to take Ozzy Albies. I'm going to get uh, you know, I'm going to get a scarce position and I'm going to get the power speed basis. And I ended up with Mookie Betts coming back. So it all worked out. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. You know, I, t I talked about draft there, but you know, in, in an auction, uh, I like doing the idea that Glenn said, and w what I want to do is you want to get players not paying a premium. And so if you can find a couple of players who have stolen bases and their bargains, I, we sometimes try to nominate them early to see if we can get them. And if we do, well, then you don't have to pay premiums ever in the draft, right? If you bank 30 stolen bases pretty nicely with your with a couple of picks, your first couple, you don't have to scrounge and get that mile straw over value by $6 somewhere in the middle once you've banked it. So the nomination order might actually pay out for you um, in, in an auction to handle this Agreed. kind of categorical need. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been a fantastic show. Oh, my God. Um, just so many tidbits of information, so much strategy, so many tactics. Uh, I really can't thank you enough, Glenn, for coming. I knew this would be a great show, and uh, it's lived up to every bit of it. So thank you very much. And uh, why don't you also tell everybody uh, where they can uh, see your stuff, listen to you, and all things Glenn Colton. Yeah, no, appreciate it. It's been so much fun. Thank you for having me. Uh, right now, the place is Colton and the Wolfman on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio every Tuesday night from 10 to midnight. You can check me out on Twitter, uh, at GlennColton1. Uh, still a little bit of a question where my written work is going to be this season. So uh, if uh, you're out there and you want uh, 
to have a conversation, I am open to it. All right, there you go. Ruvain, how about you? You can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru, where I tweet out injury updates. Right now, it's kind of slow with that just because of the player lockout. But the players did have a meeting recently, and there are small tidbits coming out. So if you follow me, you'll see the tidbits that are coming out right now. You can also follow me on Rotoboiler, where I have a, week, a weekly in-season article discussing all the injuries and the players who follow them. And my name's Ariel Cohen. You can read my work over at Fangraphs in the Rotograph section. And at Rotoboiler, ATC projections are up on both those sites and at CBS Sportsline as well. You can get a nice Google Doc over there if you are a subscriber. So check that out. My Twitter handle is ATCNY. Give me a follow if you haven't already. And uh, you can listen to me every single week here on the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangraphs. Once again, thank you so much, Glenn Colton, for coming on the show. And from all of us here at Beat the Shift, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at Beat underscore Shift underscore pod.